Hello and welcome to a new season of Interpreting India. Geopolitical realignments, sustainable growth, healthcare financing, inclusive digital transformations, climate change, supply chain disruptions, urbanization, and several other critical global matters envelop the world today as India holds the G20 presidency. We at Carnegie India continue to bring voices from India and around the world to examine the role of technology, the economy, and international security in shaping India's future. And in accordance with the G20 presidency conversations, one of the key conversations that has been missing sometimes from the main discourses has been the relationship between Brazil and India. Brazil, as some of you know, will be taking over the G20 presidency after India finishes its current presidency. And therefore, it's very important for us to figure out how these two countries think about some of the issues around climate finance, around energy, around technological innovation, global governance, and the SDGs. And joining us today to discuss all of these topics is Ambassador Andrea Arania Correa de Lago, who's the current Brazilian ambassador to India. Prior to this, Ambassador Lago has been the ambassador of Japan from 2013 to 18. And before that, he was the chief negotiator for climate change for Brazil between 2011 and 13, and for the Rio Plus 20 UN conference in 2012. It's a pleasure for us today to have Ambassador Lago with us, uh, who's the ambassador of Brazil to India, who I've had the pleasure of meeting a few times uh, in Delhi, in Bangalore, uh, on various fora, including the India Energy Week, and other conversations that Ambassador uh, Lago has been part of. And uh, as many of you who would have met him over during his tenure in India, know that he's uh, one of the more dynamic, more fun ambassadors uh, who we've had the honor of having in Delhi over the last few years. And so today it's my honor and my pleasure to have uh, Ambassador Lago on this uh, podcast episode. Welcome, Ambassador. Thank you so much. I'm delighted that you uh, that you propose uh, this uh, conversation today. I thank Carnegie for for uh, including me in a list of much more interesting people than me. <laughs> no, no, uh, that's not true at all. But thank you for for being with us. Uh, and as you know, today we're going to have a freewheeling chat, uh, Ambassador, about uh, everything from India-Brazil relations. But you know, your stay here, where you see the relationship going, several pieces that. Uh, a part of that relationship, uh, and hopefully as a relationship that will grow over the next few years, threads that you hope will grow um, over the coming years. But why don't we first start off and uh, talk a little bit about the highlights of your stay in India. You've been here a few years now, and mm-hmm. I'm sure it's been an interesting time. The world's been through a lot over the last uh, three years, and uh, uh, I would love to hear some highlights of your stay here to begin with. Well, uh, I I think there are many uh, highlights because um, I I have to tell you, I expected a lot. And that's why I've always wanted to to be in India and to live in India. Uh, And uh, so I was always fascinated by the country and also by the people. But one of the highlights is that I didn't expect that I would meet so many amazing people in my four years here and visited the country uh, quite extensively, although I will leave a little frustrated because there are so many other things that I would have loved uh, to visit and people I would have liked to to, to meet. But uh, I believe that the highlights uh, uh, are really the 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 absolute conviction that um, we have to get closer together. Uh, and uh, we are going to talk today, for instance, of one of the highlights, which was obviously uh, the ethanol uh, progress. I think that we, we also trade was very interesting, the cultural dimension also, and the evolution of the political, because I believe that in these recent years I was here, And I'm not responsible for it because many people are responsible for it. But I believe that finally Brazil and India established a bilateral relationship. But I can I can comment on that a little more after. Yeah. And so one place, uh, Ambassador, if you can tell me one place in India that you feel you will still come back to either yourself or with family Let's say five years from now. What's that one? 
look at so many places, so many places. But I, I like to quote one place uh, that I had never heard of before I came to, to India that I think is one of the most beautiful places in the world, which is Orcha. Uh, and I was completely blown away by Orcha. I did a, a trip that included Cajurao that I had obviously heard about, uh, Orcha and Gwalior. And I think that uh, Gwalior and Orcha are two of the most fantastic places in India and that deserve to be uh, on the top of any traveler, a traveler's list. Um, you know, I have to tell you, I've been to Brazil a couple of times, uh, as has my wife, uh, who's worked there for some time as well. And... Um, you have a beautiful country of your own. And uh, I, I'll share a small anecdote. You know, my, my daughter, I have two daughters. One of my daughters and I, my older one, we like to watch a lot of travel shows and a lot of food shows. And there was one food show, um, which is called, I think, um, something with Phil. Uh, there's this guy who goes to different cities, uh, Phil. And we saw the episode for Rio. I'm, I'm from Rio, so it starts... Okay, so I've been to Rio and I've, in fact, been part of the carnival parade along with my friends in Brazil uh, there many, many years ago now. But the moment my daughter saw Rio on that show, she shrieked in delight. Because she's, the first thing she says is, how can this be that there's the ocean and the mountains and a city all together? Right. And uh, she's seen many cities. She's traveled a fair bit with us. But for her, like Rio just struck uh, her because of, I think, the, the beautiful combination of natural elements somehow that. Yes. Yes. I, I, th I think it's uh, your daughter have a good eye because, you know, uh, I the other day someone was telling me that Rio de Janeiro is the only large city in the world that is famous for its natural uh, uh, circumstances, be it uh, beaches or the sugar sugar loaf, uh, and not by what man built. No, and the other thing is that the Rio still has these amazing forests and the largest urban forest in the world. And it reminds me a French traveler also who said that Rio uh, is the only city in the world that has not succeeded to expel nature from it. <laughs> and, and I'm glad it has it. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I think it really is an example of, a, of how cities should be or could be. You know, there doesn't have to be such a big divide. And I'm sure we'll talk about agriculture in a bit, but there doesn't have to be such a big divide between countryside and city, as typically you see in the world, you know. Um, and to the extent that cities can still integrate nature and retain that element of countryside, I think the better it is for the inhabitants of that city as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, good. So let me, let me now shift to, you know, a topic that obviously you'll have a lot to say about and that I think is a topic that we don't get to talk about enough in India is the India-Brazil relationship. As you pointed out, you're glad that that has become a bilateral relationship. I can tell you from the time I spent in the U.S. and then I used to travel to Latin America and I've traveled a decent bit in Latin America myself. One of the key questions in my mind always was, why are Latin America and India not closer together? Right? Um, of course, distance is one reason. But uh, I think as you have said in earlier interviews as well, and I experienced it when I was in Brazil, there's a lot of cultural similarities, I think, between the average Brazilian and the average Indian, right? Um, and, and yet that relationship is obviously not very, I would say, as strong as, you know, the Brazilian relationship maybe with some other countries and vice versa, Indian relationship with other countries around the world. So I'd love to maybe get your overview of what that India-Brazil relationship has looked like over the last few years to you. What are the key accomplishments or key things that have changed in the last three, four years? in its evolution, and what you still see as, as things that uh, still need a lot of work. Yes. Look, um, you're, you're totally right. We have amazing affinity between uh, Brazilians and Indians. We value very much uh, some uh, things that uh, are a bit uh, not so fashionable in other places, from family, friendship, some more relaxed way of life. Uh, and um, 
uh, I believe that this is uh, a very, very uh, positive and important element, more than what, uh, you know, when people normally define as culture, you know, uh, can be a bit tricky because uh, some people tell me, no, India and Brazil don't have in common because Brazil was not colonized by the British. You don't speak English. So you have much less things in common. And in fact, it's very interesting because we were not colonized by the British. We don't speak the same language. And in spite of that, we have amazing affinities. And these affinities for a Brazilian diplomat like me uh, have started in uh, meeting Indians in the multilateral context. So be it at the UN or at WTO, Brazilian uh, and uh, Indian diplomats get along exceptionally well. Uh, and we, we, we grew having a, a huge respect one for the other. And lots of coordination, even if our capitals were not particularly keen uh, on organizing that. And the same thing I understand, it's not my experience, but I understand is in foreign universities that very often uh, you see in the US or in Britain or wherever in the world that the Indian students get along very well with the Brazilian students and vice versa. And fortunately, they become lifelong friends now thanks to communication. And many of the Indians I have met have been to Brazil because their friends in universities in America or in Europe uh, convinced them to go to Brazil. Well, that's right. I, I mean, I am one of those. Uh, you know, when I was, uh, I was in business school in the U.S. at uh, the University of Pennsylvania. There was a big contingent of Brazilian uh, students there, and they organized this trip that I was telling you about where they took us. Uh, there was over 100 of us that went to Brazil with them. Wow. Wow, <laughs> that is that's impressive. That's right, and we went to like uh, not just Rio and Sao Paulo, but uh, you know other places around Brazil, and obviously part partook in the carnival celebrations, but also otherwise saw the saw the world. And I actually had met uh, a lot of Brazilian students also at the Kennedy School of Government when I was at Harvard doing my masters there as well. And again, uh, you know, as you rightly said, we've remained friends. We had a lot of cultural similarities, I think, even then that uh, we shared while we were on campus. And uh, I think those are definitely sparks for the relationship that continue right later. Um, we've hosted many of them in India over time. And I think that people to people contact often is the starting point for sometimes the governments to. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I think it is one of the biggest problem between India and uh, Brazil is that very few, and not only in relative terms, but in absolute terms, very few Indians have been to Brazil and very few Brazilians have been to India. So this is something that we definitely have to, to work on. And one of my projects that is going to to continue after I leave, but because obviously COVID made things very complicated, uh, is to take to, to Brazil some uh, um, relevant Indian opinion makers. Uh, because Brazil is not in the mainstream of Indian thinking and Indian uh, life. And although there is a very positive um, uh, feeling, there is not uh, um, enough to influence uh, uh, some of the opinion makers. So I think that taking opinion makers to Brazil and vice versa will make a huge difference. I agree with that. I think that even though it's not necessarily in the mainstream today, I think that um, it should be uh, for sure. And I think that uh, in addition to the people-to-people -people contacts and the opinion makers going between the two countries, I think economic relationship, uh, drivers of that economic relationship often also help. And, and on that point, let me ask you where you've seen that economic relationship evolve as well. And what are some of the core drivers? I know there's pharma and IT companies from India that um, obviously have business in Brazil. I know that agribusinesses and ethanol, obviously, uh, India and, the US, uh, and Brazil obviously share the strong connect around sugarcane and ethanol. But I wanted to get your views on where you're seeing that economic relationship evolve as well. Yeah. Well, the economic relationship um, exists, is already very strong, but has an amazing potential to grow. Uh, I hate when people, you know, when they talk about Brazil in India 
that they say, ah, the potential is very big. The potential is very big, but there is already uh, a huge uh, um, uh, element, uh, that, a presence that is very significant. So, for instance, uh, uh, this year, India became the fifth largest um, trade partner of Brazil, which was something uh, unthinkable a few years ago. And Brazil is becoming the eighth largest trade partner of India, which is also something that most people are quite perplexed. Uh, and uh, on the investment dimension, India is more uh, advanced than us because you have more companies from India investing in Brazil than the opposite. But it's very interesting how energy uh, is one of the main uh, points, no? because uh, the biggest investment of India in Brazil, the biggest investor today is Sterlite, uh, which has won a series of bids uh, for um, uh, electrical uh, connections, no, for um, uh, uh, so. Uh, on the other side, in India, the largest Brazilian factory is Veg, and Veg is uh, not only the second uh, largest um, electric engine producer in the world, which is a family company from Brazil, but they are building in Hosur uh, the the largest. Um, uh, wind, um, how do you call um, um, the the engine for the for the the wind energy? Uh, um, uh, it has a name. So I forgot the name. Well, anyway, um, uh, so it's it's quite extraordinary how uh, uh, energy is a source of huge investments uh, on both sides. Um, but as you mentioned, there is pharmaceutical, there is agriculture, uh, there are many other investments that are happening. But regarding investment, we still have a long, long way to go. And that's very exciting. That's, I, I think that's great that you've highlighted the specific examples around, uh, I think, both Indian companies and Brazilian companies that are already, I think, in uh, the other country. And uh, how do you, they, how these investments are obviously at scale as well? They're not just small ones. But let me also ask you about the the other aspect of the, uh, of India's economic engine, which has been startups. Right. So one of the main stories coming out of India over the last decade, I would say, um, has been not just the large corporates that are expanding globally or even within India, but it's also the startups of India that are driving in a way the economic dynamism. That's making people optimistic about India's future. Where does Brazil stand on the startup uh, scene? Uh, and are there much in terms of connections between the startup ecosystems of the two world, of the two countries? In fact, yes, uh, because um, lately I have been um, informed of some uh, areas in which uh, uh, Brazilian startups are doing a very similar. Uh, job than their Indian counterparts. And by the way, once they are connected, they get along super well. Uh, one is in fintech. Uh, as uh, uh, we all know that India has this extremely advanced uh, um, uh, structure uh, for uh, digitalizing the population. Uh, but uh, the, 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 the greatest Indian experts told me that probably uh, Brazil has the closest uh, experience to what India is facing. We have a, 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 a money transfer system called PIX that is extremely similar to yours. Uh, but India has um, much more uh, has uh, gone much more in deep in this digitalization. By the way, this is a very important subject for the G20 this year and for Brazil's presidency uh, next year. Another area uh, is uh, are the the uh, the advances in agriculture. Uh, so be it drones or other uh, uh, technologies that are now being applied to agriculture. This is also something uh, that brought uh, many um, uh, young tech companies from Brazil and from India that we put in contact to work together. I think that's great to hear. I have, I think, heard, but I also don't know enough about the 
you know, UPI equivalent that you have in Brazil, PIX, I think is what you mentioned. And I think that itself is a, is a subject worth studying. I think for us at Carnegie India, given all the work that we do around digital public infrastructure and, uh, and technology policy for us to both, for both India and Brazil to learn from each other on, on that front. And obviously for startups also to exchange. I mean, I have spent the last decade in the venture capital and startup world in India and in the US and, uh, we'll definitely, I think, try and promote some of that interaction and learning between the two startup ecosystems. Let me now transition to... Yeah, but, but uh, let me um, comment on that because I think this is very important. Yeah, the element that unites us a lot, uh, Brazil and India, uh, with the startups and all these new technologies and the dig- digitalization, is that we have a completely different objective than the developed countries. The developed countries is about uh, bettering the quality uh, of consumption, bettering the quality of a life that is already advanced. In the case of India and Brazil, it is an instrument to leapfrog in enormous areas uh, of uh, activities of the lower income population. And I think this is what really we are talking the same language. When you talk to a Dane or you talk to, uh, I don't want to to, uh, specify countries with which we don't have so much affinity, but it's not a question of affinities that they forgot what it is to have poors. And we still know we have uh, these societies, Brazil and India have societies of extremes. We have the most sophisticated intellectuals and experts, etc., etc. And unfortunately, we still have lots of people uh, with very difficult circumstances. So uh, the social dimension of our digital inclusion is what really makes a very special. Absolutely. I think you've hit the nail on the head. That's right. I think that for India also, when you hear the narrative around technology, it has very clearly this dimension of technology to be used for social good, for upliftment of those who've been excluded, right? And that's where UPI and Aadhaar are really being seen as tools for financial inclusion, right? To bring into the banking system and the formal financial systems, those who have been otherwise deprived of that uh, financial access. And I think similarly in Brazil, it'll have a similar underlying goal. And I think that's where there's a lot of commonality to be explored. And also as a result for innovation to happen on that front. Whereas the Danes, for example, will not be innovating on that. So Basta, as we were discussing, uh, we had we'd been discussing how the startups of the two ecosystems can collaborate and how financial inclusion or really including the people who've otherwise been inclu- excluded from development are at the core of what both Brazil and Indian startups are using technology for, right? So similar to your picks and UPI here in India, these are, again, as you rightly said, tools for financial inclusion of people who have otherwise been excluded from the financial uh, access that, you know, the Danes or other developed nations might not be focusing on. And that, that opens up an area of uh, collaboration, obviously, for the startups as well. Let me, on the point of energy, startups, and innovation, talk about a, a topic that I know is dear to your heart and a topic that I think is core to the Brazil-India relationship, which is biofuels. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I, uh, um, uh, the energy uh, has also this component uh, that we were mentioning, which has the social component. So uh, um, the, the, the India has still to include millions of people into uh, um, a grid and into services, electric uh, uh, electric services that are simply essential for today's jobs and for today's uh, uh, advances. So this is, again, uh, something that Brazil and India look um, at uh, with the same perspective. There is a social dimension that is essential. And the ethanol program uh, has all these elements together. And sometimes, once again, some developed countries don't understand the importance uh, of all these other elements. No, exactly. And I think for those who are not familiar with bioethanol, um, as we were mentioning, I think, earlier in our conversation, both India and Brazil 
have one thing in common. They're, they're two of the largest producers of sugarcane in the world. And uh, one of the byproducts of sugarcane, molasses, which is converted then into ethanol or bioethanol, is now being included uh, or, or blended with petrol or gasoline and is fueling cars both in India and in Brazil. And in fact, Brazil has been one of the leaders uh, on the ethanol front for the last several decades. And I would love, uh, Ambassador, for you to elaborate a little bit more about the historical evolution of ethanol in the case of Brazil also. But the importance of it is that, the uh, importance of that ethanol piece in the India-Brazil relationship is that in the last few years, India has, much like Brazil, though a few years later than Brazil, realized that ethanol must form a crucial part of its own energy strategy. As we cannot be dependent completely, as we are on oil imports, as a way of domestically producing at least some portion of our energy requirements. And so, Ambassador Lago, if you can share the historical context of how the ethanol program came to be what it is now in Brazil, and what lessons it holds for India as India embarks on its own journey to go from single-digit blending to now E10 or 10% blending to hopefully 20% in the coming years. Yeah, uh, you know that when uh, when the, um, the oil crisis happened in 1973, uh, India and Brazil were two of the, the biggest victims of that crisis because we were highly dependent on oil. Uh, India still imports more than 80% uh, of the oil it consumes. And in 1973, Brazil imported more than 80% uh, of the oil it consumes. But the interesting thing of the, uh, of the ethanol program at the time is that it, it was a necessity because we didn't have um, a foreign currency to buy enough uh, energy uh, for the country and and the ethanol is an entire uh, process that happens inside the country. So it's the same thing for for India. But the fascinating thing of our experience, I believe, is that uh, since then Brazil has become a very important oil producer. We are now the seventh largest producer and the seventh largest exporter. And this has not reduced at all our enthusiasm with ethanol. On the opposite, uh, the, the ethanol program in Brazil is stronger and stronger because if it made sense in some dimensions in 1970s, now it makes much more sense since uh, we have discovered how positive it is for climate change, how positive it is for pollution, and how positive it is for the economy and for the farmers. Uh, in, in India, uh, sugarcane uh, is responsible for the income of uh, tens of millions of people. In Brazil, also a very large uh, portion of the population. So it is a program that has uh, uh, an agriculture dimension, that has an income of farmers dimension. Then it has uh, a, a cycle of... Um, technology that is com completely controlled and also a, a basic simplicity that, uh, that e even more when it compares to other options. So Brazil has more than 20% uh, blend in the gasoline mandatory uh, for more than 40 years. So what we have been able to bring to, to our uh, Indian counterparts, be it in business, academia, science, government, is to show them how we dealt with this and how many myths were built surrounding it. Now, this, as I told you, is 40 years of the blend. A Brazilian today, when he goes to a pump, has only two options, either to put gasoline with ethanol Nowadays, it's 27% ethanol mix, mandatory. And the other option he has is a pump with 100% ethanol. Now, what cars can use 100% ethanol? Believe it or not, we are the fifth largest producer of cars in the world, and 97% of cars produced in Brazil can use 100% ethanol because it has a flex fuel engine. You can put whatever mix of gasoline and ethanol you want. So we have 
97% of our production can use 100% ethyl. So there are no other options and it works. And it works. It's not that we have very strange cars. We have exactly the same cars as you. We have Honda, we have Fiat Ford, all the Volkswagen, all the, 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 the multi, multinational uh, car companies that are active in India are also active in Brazil. Now, why is ethanol a solution that is specifically better for India and for Brazil? First, as you mentioned, because Brazil and India are the two largest producers of sugar. But second, because the technology of ethanol has evolved in an extraordinary way, and we are going towards a second-generation ethanol, and second-generation ethanol can use the waste of most agricultural products. And this will eliminate, in the case of India, stubble burning, which is one of the main sources of pollution uh, in the cities uh, like Delhi. So what we have today in Brazil is, uh, is a situation that is hard to believe, but Sao Paulo, our largest city, and what, which was famously polluted city, Today, in the ranking of the most polluted cities in the world, it is above the number 1,700. Good. That should, give, that should give a lot of inspiration to yes. <laughs> like uh, that you and I have the pleasure of living in. No, I think that the points you make are obviously all valid. And I think one of when you and I were both at India Energy Week, one of the key announcements coming out uh, of India Energy Week was the announcement of a global biofuels alliance is is i think intended to build on that complementarity uh, that india and brazil both have or the commonality rather of using ethanol and biofuels as a key part of the energy strategy um the other country obviously that's part of the alliance is the us so maybe i you can elaborate a little bit on global biofuels alliance and what it's uh, goals and objectives should be, and where you see that alliance in, let's say, five years from now? Yes. Uh, the the issue uh, of the, the, the Global Biofuels Alliance is very, very positive. It's an initiative of India in the context of the G20 uh, that we find particularly exciting. And the three uh, initial uh, um Actors in this effort from India is India, Brazil, and the United States. The United States um, produces ethanol from maize, which is different, obviously, from sugarcane. And it, uh, although it reduces emissions without doubt, it reduces less than sugarcane ethanol. Uh, there, there are many uh, there, there are many levels of reduction of emissions uh, according to the the product that you use to produce the ethanol. No? So uh, in general, for um, maize ethanol, most people agree that it's around 30% or 40% reduction, uh, and, uh, and it's constantly uh, getting better. For sugarcane ethanol, it can be up to 70% reduction. Uh, and the second generation ethanol can be even higher. Obviously, the second generation ethanol of sugarcane is going to be better than the second generation ethanol from maize. But the fact is the second generation ethanol will be uh, uh, amazingly, uh, is amazingly efficient. So we already have these uh, levels uh, of reduction of ethanol uh, from uh, these different uh, original products uh, for for the ethanol. In the case uh, of the U.S., um, it's quite fascinating because they have become the most important producer of ethanol in the world because their program is very, very ambitious. And I'm sure that India is going to have the largest uh, project uh, in the world because your scale is so fantastic that by adopting 20% uh, starting 2025 or even 24, uh, you are probably going to be the largest producers very, very soon. So uh, I, I think that the great uh, revolution of having three major producers and markets like Brazil, India, and the United States is that you can transform ethanol into a commodity, which is something that many countries... Uh, want to see before they adopt more ethanol because 
Some countries don't want to be dependent on a product that can only be produced, for instance, until recently, only by Brazil and the US uh, or a few other countries. So the fact that we have India now uh, in this effort uh, gives uh, literally a new dimension to the relevance of biofuels in the world. And so the goal, therefore, Ambassador for the Global Biofuels Alliance would, in addition to obviously once, let's say, ethanol is able to achieve that commodity status, is to then enable more trade, more exchange of that commodity, and I'm assuming also innovation around that commodity? Well, uh, the, the innovation is absolutely constant. I've been talking a lot to Brazilian experts uh, and participating in many of the discussions with their Indian counterparts. And even for a Brazilian that uh, is so used to ethanol, every time I am completely perplexed by the technological advances that we have reached recently. So uh, uh, even to, to the point uh, that uh, some of the experts in Brazil uh, have uh, already shown uh, that ethanol may be the safest uh, way of transporting hydrogen because you can produce hydrogen from ethanol uh, and this can happen either at the pump or it can happen even inside the car uh, with a kind of tec tec technical thing called reform. But the fact is that hydrogen, many people fear hydrogen because of the, the dangers in transportation and in storage. So uh, ethanol is not as many people love to think that it is a transition technology that only works for one or for another. No, the more you know about ethanol, the most fascinated, the more fascinated you get about it. Yeah, yeah. And I think ethanol, absolutely. I think further innovation on that front will be required to both bring down the cost of 2G ethanol, even though you are now able to use, as you mentioned, multiple inputs, multiple agri-waste and uh, things as an input for your production. You also need to bring the cost down because as I understand, the cost of 2G ethanol in India is still a bit higher than where we would want it. So I think both in terms of bringing the cost of it down but also, as you said, uh, for it to become an enabler of other technologies or other fuels, uh, fuel carriers such as hydrogen. Mm -hmm. Let me now shift uh, beyond the India-Brazil partnership, uh, which you spent a fair bit of time talking about, to the global stage. I think on the global stage, one of the key things that is um, the, the main issue in a way, both as part of India's G20 presidency, but even beyond that is the issue of climate. Obviously, ethanol and biofuels are a part of that. But I wanted to ask you a broader question about climate, which is that of climate finance. Given Brazil and India, as you have rightly pointed out, are in similar stages in many ways of having a lot of people who are below the poverty line or who are still in very difficult circumstances, climate will hit countries like India and Brazil very differently. We also have another thing in common that we are not amongst the technologically most developed countries or economically the most developed countries, as a result of which we do have constraints of access to capital in both India and Brazil, both for innovation and adoption of technology, but also in terms of mitigation and adaptation for populations that are uh, very vulnerable to climate uh, disasters. Given climate finance has been a topic of great debate in you know in platforms like COP, even G20, the key issue or the key contention becomes that developing countries like India and Brazil want historical emitters and more developed countries to do more than their share in terms of providing finance and capital uh, to developing countries like India and Brazil. Mm -hmm. What's your sense on how do we get out of that uh, dilemma where developing countries like India and Brazil keep demanding more in terms of capital? And unfortunately, on the other side, the developed countries, while they commit sometimes, there has been historically very little evidence to say that they will back or finish, complete the commitments that they sometimes make. And sometimes they don't make the kind of commitments that, you know, countries like India and Brazil might want. How do you see, like, what's the way forward on, on, on that issue of climate finance in your view? Mm -hmm. uh, look, uh, yeah, climate finance is a huge uh, is a huge. Uh, theme, but I would like to put a little in context uh, because I believe that there was a positive evolution even if we didn't see the money yet in the amounts that we would like to see. But there are some 
significant progress. One of the progress, I can tell you, uh, is the following, is that there is a commitment. No, there is a commitment and there is a consciousness of the developed countries that they have uh, to provide $100 billion a year uh, to, to allow the, the developing countries to be able to do uh, uh, what uh, they can do. Uh, but, but I would like to stress the following. This agenda of climate change uh, is in, uh, originally in the context of uh, sustainable development. And uh, a very important evolution that we had in 2015, by the way, was not only the Paris Accord, but it was also the agreement on the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, are a very interesting way to measure development nowadays. Why? Because the, 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 or many people think that it's just a new version of the MDGs, of the Millennium Development Goals. No, the Millennium Development Goals were designed uh, regarding um, uh, situations of extreme poverty or extreme injustice. The SDGs is about really a society becoming sustainable. So many, by the way, all developed countries have very bad marks in sustainable development goals too. It's not only developing countries. So they have to do lots of things at home. So, and one of the things that they have to do at home is related to uh, unsustainable patterns of consumption. So there is, uh, um, uh, I believe, uh, an enormous exercise in the negotiations of climate change of trying to throw uh, the, the guilt or the responsibility from one side to the other, from developing countries to developed countries. But it's infinitely more complex than that because the North and the South in the negotiations of climate change are already divided. There are developing countries that are very resentful of other developing countries that don't do what they could do. And in, among developed countries, you have some developed countries that have no ambition at all and some developed countries that have lots of ambition. So the division is very intense and the reality is that a lot can be done. Now, obviously, you need financial resources for that, but you need that in uh, all countries. You know, when you take India or you take Brazil and people say, oh, but the Ministry of Agriculture is always fighting with the Ministry of Environment, which is fighting with the Ministry of Finance and with the Ministry of Transportation, which is true. This happens also in Germany. This happens also in Spain. This happens also in the United States. Why? Because the big issue of climate change is that it can only change through a gigantic economic change. Climate change will not be solved by environmental solutions. It's economic solutions that we need. We have, I think that environmental subjects like uh, that originate as an environmental subject like climate change, they, they have to evolve to become an issue other, also for others. So, First, it was the environmentalists who were the first to sound the alarm. Then you have the scientists. Then you had the politicians. Then you had the businessmen. But you have, for instance, still very little economic theory about uh, climate change. So I believe that there is, uh, uh, it's necessary to change the mindsets and the logic of business and even the logic in which governments uh, deal with their uh, finances. So it's not only about international uh, uh, access to resources, which is a big issue that has to be stressed. But there are lots of things that India is doing, lots of things that Brazil is doing, in spite of not having access uh, to these things. And I think this is what should be valued, is to see how much, like for instance, the Indian policy on biofuels. This is not something that was brought by uh, an international movement to have India adopting this. No, India is adopting this because it analyzed and it reached the conclusion that was 
what some people call a low-hanging fruit for a large producer of sugar um, that has so many people depending on sugar in the countryside. They said so. There were many elements that entered into that. In other uh, themes related to climate change, we have the same situation. So. We have to continue to complain about the difficulty of having uh, international resources more uh, more easily and in larger quantity. But there is still a lot that we can do inside our countries. Uh, and that is where really uh, good governments and good governance really can help. No, absolutely. I agree with you. And I think I've written about this recently. I completely agree with you that you cannot continue waiting for that dilemma to be resolved. You've got to still act because the problem is not waiting for countries or international organizations to figure out the solution. The issue of climate is, is you know, continuing to worsen uh, for many of us, um, despite whatever might or might not happen in international negotiations. And on that point of international negotiations, Ambassador, if you can conclude with one uh, question around global governance. While we've spoken about, you know, climate as one of those issues, is your sense that global governance institutional framework, does that now need to adapt given recent developments, both geopolitically and otherwise? Or are we going to see that these institutions themselves will need to just reform, like let's say the UN? Or are we going to see the emergence of platforms like the G20 that become more and more powerful or influential, right? The G20 itself was formed as an economic grouping, but now many countries are seeing that as as a platform beyond just uh, covering beyond just economic issues. What's your sense of where we're going to see the global institutional framework evolve? Hmm. Well, we always have to to complain about global governance because uh, everything can be improved. So it's very important to to, to be critical of it. But we have to recognize the many things that were achieved. So uh, we can criticize the UN in many points of view, but the truth is that the UN has been extremely successful in avoiding major problems. So um, uh, I'm, some people call it like the... the the positive agenda or the action agenda, action-oriented agenda, and the agenda of avoiding problems. So I think that the UN has been very successful in avoiding problems, uh, and we have to recognize that. Now, on the um, uh, action-oriented, we have to remember also that the UN, when it started to, to wake up all the governments um, uh, to deal with climate change, because you have to remember that the UN cannot do anything without the member countries. It's the member countries that do the thing. But the UN organized and structured those discussions. When it started discussing climate change, it was a time that everybody thought that it was completely crazy to start talking about climate change. I'm talking about 1987. So it's not the UN fault that... Uh, the climate change agenda has not had better results. It's the fact that the member countries do not agree on what they have to do under the United Nations. But So it's not the institution that has to be criticized. It is the way we act in those institutions. So the, the post-war structure with the UN on one side and the Bretton Woods uh, on the other side obviously was inspired and uh, and possible because of the circumstances of those years. And these circumstances have changed enormously. So uh, you, can, uh, you can obviously make them better. And Brazil and India are very close in trying to have a larger say in the Bretton Woods institutions and also in the UN, since we are together for the expansion of the Security Council permanent members. But the truth is that uh, we have to, at the same time that we fight for making these institutions better, we have also to recognize that we want to use them because we think that they can be useful and that they can be better. Now, what is the G20? The G20 is an informal group that was created um, um, uh, much later by uh, to discuss financial issues and that was elevated at head of state level after the 2008 crisis. So the G20 is somehow uh, uh, 
a very uh, dynamic and important new structure, but it doesn't have the mandate that the others have. It is, uh, um, uh, it is one of those, uh, let's say, um, contexts that we are using because of the difficulty of reforming the UN and of reforming the, uh, the Bretton Woods institutions. So, for instance, BRICS was created in that same context, and it was essentially about the economic dimension, but little by little it became a very political group. IBSA, India, Brazil, South Africa, was created even before uh, uh, BRICS. And uh, um, it is also a very important context in which uh, we are discussing. But the truth is that you cannot substitute the UN, you cannot substitute the Bretton Woods institutions with these new institutions. But what, what we can achieve in the G20, and that's what the Indian presidency is doing, in a very convincing way, uh, is that you have to use this possibility of a dialogue of a group that doesn't exist in the other institutions. So the G20 has 10 developing countries and 10 developed countries talking at the same level, which is something that you don't have in any of the other institutions. So what India is doing and what Brazil hopes to do next year is to use the G20 to, uh, to, to try to solve some of the issues that got excessively uh, uh, complex or difficult in the institutions uh, that already exist. Absolutely. Thank you so much, uh, Ambassador, for managing to navigate what I thought was going to be a tricky question, uh, but that's, I guess, uh, that's that's the work you've been doing for several decades now. Uh, this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. Uh, we've covered everything from, you know, improving the people-to-people contacts between our two countries. We've spoken about energy. We've spoken about startups and technological innovation for, you know, for good, for, for our uh, broader populations. We've spoken about climate energy inclusion, global governance, SDGs, and obviously the G20 and the UN. Uh, Thank you for sharing your thoughts on all of these. And thank you for being such a great, uh, I think, inspirational figure in the diplomatic community in India, in uh, in Delhi. And uh, we look forward at Carnegie India to continue to engage with you and and work with you on some of the pieces around the India-Brazil relationship and obviously also on the global stage. Thank you again for taking the time. Thank you very, very much. And uh, I take this opportunity to thank India and the Indians to have made me, my wife, and my family so happy those four years in this incredible place. Thank and you. And we hope you are back again, uh, whether it's... Yes, you don't get rid of me. You don't get rid of me. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much, Ambassador. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. To make sure you don't miss it, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts from. To learn more about our research and team, you can visit us at carnegieindia.org. You can also find us on social media on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you for listening and see you next time.